Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 230. Firstly, let me wish everyone a good Gebench to Yod. I hope you're Yom Tevim from Rosh Hashanah, through Yom Kippur, through Sukkot, through Simchus Teda, went Lamaila, Mekola Meshur, above all expectations. And may we, as the Maimorim of Chassidus explain, take from this Moedim Klolim, these centralized holidays. From Shoshana we take Kabbalah Sale, the acceptance of the yoke of heaven for the entire year. Malchus Kabbalah Sale, Malchus Shamayim. From Yom Kippur we take Tshuva for the entire year. And from Sukkot we take Simcha, Joy, experiencing that type of commitment and connection and joy throughout the entire year, all in good health and Nachas from ourselves and from our children fulfilling our mission in this world. And may it be a year of Geula, Amitiz Vashlema, after all these years, finally, where it all comes to fruition, the realization of the purpose of creation and existence. With that, we resume now after this Yom Tov season. We're at the last days of Tishrei. And we're, uh, this, in a few days, we'll be going into the month of Cheshvan, the second month of the year. So it's appropriate to talk about, as we always do, about the timely, the timely events, and in this case, the transition from the holiday season to the, we call the regular year, the routine, so to speak, the routines of our year. This is a theme that the Rebbe addressed literally every year this, during this period of time as we're leaving Tishrei and going to Shabbos Bereshis and Shabbos Parshanoyach. So I'll sum up some of those ideas. Of course, based on the Ma'amorim and the, and the words and the Chesich and the Tadus of the Rabbeim before the Rebbe, which of course is based on all the Tadus from the generations before that. Everything in Tadus is always built upon that which comes before and applied to the given situation in each generation with the Chidush, the respective Chidushim and innovation, so to speak, that each Rebbe and each generation adds fittingly to its particular time. So the big question, of course, is Tishrei, as it said, Meruba B'meides, is a month that's filled with holidays. It's rich. It says, Muzba Bakel. Shvi also comes from the word sated, satiated, meaning filled, rich with holidays. Then we go away from these holidays from Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, all the way to Simchas Teda, and we are expected to enter a regular routine of our lives. So what happens with all the inspiration, with all the power, with all the energy that we accumulated during Tishrei? And the answer is in the expression of the Friedrich Rebbe, first we gathered all these resources and now we have to unpack them. Another expression in Lubavitch, as the Rebbe often brings, in Lubavitch he used to say, and Yaakov went on his way, it was said, the Rebbe brings that in Vekocha, for the Rebbe Marash, it's already said on Sukkot. And of course, it's said on Shabbos Bereshis, then, then on Chedesh Cheshvan. And the Rebbe explains there are many levels of Yaakov Al-Chadarke. There's literally, as we go, Simchus Teter is the end of the holidays as you go into Israchag and the days after that. And even deeper Yaakov Al-Chadarke is in the days following when Cheshvan begins. And even deeper when it goes even further into the so-called regular year with a famous example from the Gemara and Medrash that during the holidays it's like having a feast and a banquet together with Hashem and God. And during the six, six days, seven days of Sukkot, 
we feast together, all of us, and then Hashem says, now, because I know we're going to soon be partying, it's difficult for me, your parting, not our parting, not Pridasenu, because God doesn't part from us, but we part because we don't see the, quite the same revelation and have the same surge of energy and um, experience as we do it during the holiday month. So the Ebrister says, let's make one feast, one yochid, one small feast, just ano malkub You, ano, ani and the king all are one. The king and the king's daughter. In order to empower the daughter, and that of course is every neshama, each one of us, to be able to go into the next months, which are called the winter months, where there are no holidays until Pesach. We're talking about the holidays of Piteira. So it's like cold, distant winter months, which the spirituality is more concealed. And but we're empowered with the end of this month, Shminatzeres and Chutzlar and Simchas as well, to go and then take all that, as I said, unpack, internalize, and integrate it into our lives. So in essence, you can say in brief that the post-holiday season, which is where we are right now, is really a transition between inspiration and bringing it into the patterns and routines of our standard lives. To actually infuse our ordinary lives with the extraordinary that we gained in this new year with all the new energies that were, were, were transmitted to us from Rosh Hashanah all the way to Simchus Teda. And in truth, both on a personal level and on a collective level, this is a very important lesson because it's one thing to be inspired, it's another is to maintain inspiration. Inspiration is relatively easy, but to maintain it, when you go back to your, so, so to speak, the monotony of your life and the regular functions and the regular routines and the job and so on, much easier to be inspired when you're going, it's a yomtif, it's a holiday. You're doing things that are unique, that, that are different, that are not so common. But in truth, godliness is everywhere. And the challenge really is to make a didabetachtenim really begins after Tishrei. Tishrei is a type of recharging of the batteries and infusion of strength. But now, now begins the journey. It's like going back to the engine room, going back to the source. But then we have to go back to where we each one, our respective missions, wherever we may be, and in our work, and in our homes, and wherever, wherever our footsteps are led, and take that energy and infuse it and internalize it and transform the material world. So in truth, the real purpose is not Tishrei. The real purpose is to take the Tishrei power into our daily lives and to make a dirabitachtem, to transform existence as we know it and make the ordinary extraordinary, the usual unusual. And we're given that power. So in a sense, these days have a lot of power because they have that ability to create the bridge. Now coming from Shabbos Bereshis, Bereshis, of course, the first chapter that we read on Simchas Teda, the beginning of it, and we, the whole Pasha was read yesterday in Shul. So Shabbos Bereshis is a perfect transition. Because you have the Simchas Teda part of it, the beginning of the Teda following the conclusion of the whole Teda that we read also on, on uh, Simchas Teda, the end of Vizesa, the whole Vizesa Abrache. And then that leads us into Bereshis Baralikim, a new world, Bereshis, which interestingly also has the word Reishis, like Tishrei is the letters Reishis, which means like the head, and like Rosh Hashanah. But now Bereshis is already beginning to take all that and channeling it into the year, which is the creation of a new world, which of course is renewed all the time, but especially at the, at the new year, Rosh Hashanah, as the Alter Rebbe says, a new energy enters into existence. And now we begin to unpack it. But what comes after Bereshis comes Nayach. 
Noyach, if you th- read about it, is, a, is not such a positive parsha. As a matter of fact, we know the Pisgum, the expression from the Rabbeim, the Bereshis is Bereshis, the creation of the world. Noyach is a Kalamutna, it's a more sad, a more depressing chapter because it talks about the, ultim- the, uh, the ultra-corruption of the world and the need, the need for God to go bring a flood and, recre- and cleanse the entire world and re- recreate a new world after the tremendous corruption. But the end of the Pasha says, the end of the Pasha Neyach Lebedik, that's the expression of the Rabbein, because Avram Avinu was born. Avram Avinu begins to bring the light in. As everyone knows, from the different, of course, if you know Bosilagani, the famous Bosilagani from the Friedrich Rebbe, that the Rebbe every year would review and explain, that after the Ebishter created the world, Bosilagani, Chesikala, Lagani, Lagnuni, Lagsivel, Lagani, what does that mean? which means this is the Ikashkina Batakhtainamesa. This is where the Ikashkina was. But then, God forbid, through the Khatay Sadas, the Shina was concealed and moved to the first Rakia, meaning concealed. The next generation of transgressions concealed it even more. Seven generations of concealment, which of course concludes Pasha Neyach and all that happened there, the Der Hamabul and the Der Hafloga, the building of the Tower of Babel. But then comes Avram Avinu. Eisen Hagodl, as the Rambam says, the great powerful uh, power of Avram Avinu, and he begins to reverse the process, and he brings it from Rikiyashvi to Rikiyashishi, begins to reveal godliness, as we know the story of Avram, which we'll discuss next week. Yitzchok, Yaakov, all the way Moshe, the seventh generation, that recreates what happened in the beginning, but now, with all the experience and the maturity that came during these generations. So what we are right now is Nayakh is, is the beginning of the Nayakh, of course, is the world is so corrupt, as the end of Bereshis already begins to discuss, and God says that times come to do something about it. But we don't look at the Mabal as pure destruction. We look at the Mabal as a sad event, but the Mabal is like a mikveh, 40 days, that cleansed the world. And it wasn't utter destruction. Nayakh and his family survived. The, all the species survived. In order to be in the Elam Chodashurah, when comes out of the Teva, Elam Chodosh. There's a number of Sikhs that talk about this, but one specific one that, I'm, that I want to just address, I believe it was in the year Tov Shalom Zion, maybe. I'm not positive about that. Where the Rebbe says that there's two commandments in the Pasha Neyach. One is Kines, that you should enter the Ark, and the second is Tseimina Teva. So one is to enter the ark and one is to leave the ark. Why do you need a command to leave? The mabul is over. Because once, because the ne- cause the teva, as the Baal Shem Tev says, is like the tevas of teva and tefillah. That's why the word teva, even though it means both, but there's other words for a boat. Teva also means words. The sacred words of teva and tefillah that protect us from the mayim rabim, from the surging waters of the daigus, of the worries of parnassah, livelihood, and other things that concern us. So we protect ourselves like an ark, from those surging waters. And once you're in there, you're comfortable. So you have to have another commandment, know the time has come to leave and now go back into the world. Avraham wasn't happy to go back into the world. He saw what had happened. He didn't want another, another cycle of corruption. God says, no, you have to command them again to go. So the first command is to leave the world in which the corrupt world and go into this teva. But then comes the commandment to leave the teva and go into the material world and transform it, as I mentioned before. So all this is not just uh, random. 
You see, Noyach follows the theme from Bereshis is the creation of the world. Then you see the fall and you see the way human beings have abused their free will and used it in a way that unfortunately corrupted themselves and the world around them. But then comes the cleansing of that and the rebuilding of the world. So you have the whole cycle of life, the ups and downs that all of us go through even personally, right here as Tishrei ends. And Tishrei, of course, is a revelation, time of like when everything's positive. But when you go back into the routines of the world, there can be sometimes setbacks and falls and transgressions and uh, misdemeanors, crimes and misdemeanors. But then comes the, the protecting ourselves with the teva and then leaving the teva and rebuilding a world in a new way, in a powerful way, to ultimately to refine it towards leading it toward the geula mitis v'ashlema. So these are personal lessons that you can take from this period in time, including Nayak. I will cross-reference to episodes 39, 85, 135, and 184, where I've discussed this in the previous years of this uh, series, My Life, um, and uh, maybe some of the details are overlapping. But this is a good opportunity for those that are listening for the first time, for those that are listening for a longer time, a good opportunity to mention that we have a very rich resource called My Life Chassidus Applied online on our website, MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, where you can find, firstly, the archives that I'm referring to and cross-referencing to of previous episodes. This is now going, we're now already in the fifth year. It's 230, this is the 230th episode. You can also find there the, the forum where you can submit any question anonymously and confidentially, completely. No one including myself, knows who it is, unless you include an email if you want us to communicate with you. And you can also find the essays of the previous four years where we have uh, some of the essay contests, which we, have, we run every year at the end of, approximately the end of December, from around Chavdala Tevis to Yudalaf Nissen. And you can see the very powerful essays that many people have written, submitted, that apply chassidus to personal life issues. I'll also use this opportunity since the year is beginning, a new year, that we live on your, your sponsorships and support. So please be generous in sending us a generous donation or dedicating a class to the, to the, to the honor or memory of a loved one. And you could easily do that at MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. Okay, let's now go into um, some questions that were asked, some of them relevant literally to this time especially post-Simchus and some new questions, and I want to again assure everyone who submitted a question. As you'll see, there's some questions here that came in a while ago. I will get to them all, and please bear with me and be with patience because there's a, there is a line, so to speak. Many questions have been submitted, and I want to be fair to everyone. So I try to bunch them together into similar themes, but we will get to them. And um, so even if you haven't heard your, your question addressed, Rest assured, it will be addressed at, in the near future. And I want to thank you as well, a good opportunity to thank you for all your questions and for all your comments and for all your even critique. It only helps us improve and refine this program. And please keep it coming because at the end of the day, this is a dual relationship, a mutual partnership in how in taking this and applying it to the real-life issues and challenges of our time. So let us begin with this question. I found it to be very um, blunt and relevant. And it goes like this. Do fathers have to ignore their families on Simchus Teda? So though we're after Simchus Teda, this question came in 
um, I, I think after Simchas I'm not sure really when the date was, but regardless, I felt that sort of, instead of waiting until next year, let's talk about it now. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I hope you had a wonderful Yom Tov season. Oh, clearly it was after Yom Tov, yeah. I hope you had a wonderful Yom Tov season. I remember last year you discussed women's involvement in Simchas celebrations, and I would like to ask you a question on a similar topic. What is the correct way for Lubavitcher husbands and fathers to conduct their Simchas the Simchas celebrations with regards to taking care of their families? Of their families. Is it appropriate for the men to ignore their wives and children throughout the day? My feeling is that Simchas is such an incredible and enjoyable day. Why not share it with your family? Yet we see that many in Anash stay at shul all day without their families, leaving their wives and children to eat at home. I won't get into the alcohol issue here. It goes without saying that abusing the concept of L'chaim and Simchus by getting drunk is abominable. See Rambam Hilchus Deis 5.3. And sets a terrible example for children. Is there an Indian to abandon one's family for Simchus Why not stay at shul for a reasonable amount of time and then go home with your family to have a responsible Suddhus Yomtev, a respectable, sorry, a respectable Suddhus Yomtev, and dance at sing at home or even in the streets? I believe it is our responsibility as husbands and fathers to put our families first. When I arrived back at Shul for Mincha and Simchas there were a few men still wearing their talises, excuse the correct grammar, which indicated they had not gone home for the day, and I felt sorry for their families. I guess I just want to understand our practices better and want to make sure to give my own children a positive experience. Can you please comment on the above and suggest what the best approach would be to balancing celebrating Simchas V a chosid, like a chosid, and also taking care of our families. I don't believe these should be mutually exclusive, but rather go hand in hand. Thanks in advance. Well, I want firstly want to appreciate, express my appreciation for the question. Straight to the point. It, the first thing that came to mind, I'm just going to speak spontaneous here when I read this, was um, the story with the Alta Rebbe and the Mitla Rebbe, where they were both studying once at home. Obviously, they were up in the same bill, same home, and the child either fell out of the crib or was crying. The Amitlareb was so immersed in his studies, he didn't hear the child cry. The Altareb did, took the child, nurtured it, got it back into bed, and then he reprimanded the Amitlareb. Well, how is it possible that you should be so immersed in your learning and not hear Kail Yelad Becha, the cry of a child? It reminded me because you would think being immersed in Teda, unbelievable. He's so immersed, he doesn't hear any external sounds. Yes, not hear external sounds that are nonsense, obviously, or even important things. You're learning Teda, but the cry of a child. So we see from this and just many other stories, the story, the famous story of the Alta Rebbe leaving Davening Yom Kippur to go help a leather son who just gave birth. And of course, Pikuach Nefesh goes without saying. But the idea is that you can't be so consumed with your own spiritual ecstasy and spiritual celebration and forget children. And this is even children that are not our own, let alone our own children. So I happen to agree, not happen to agree, I absolutely agree, that to ignore family and children and just celebrate can be a very selfish thing as well. Is it coming from Yiddish Shemaim that a person is so consumed with Simchas Teda, or is it coming because it's an enjoyable party? Now, I'm not saying shalei shma bol That's my first reaction. At the same time, I do want to qualify. The fact of the matter is, davening goes long, simchas longer than usual. 
And just like on Yom Kippur, we really, usually not with our families, besides the fact there's no meals, but even, even if our children come to us with us to shul, but we spend most of the time in shul. So Simcha's Teddy, you could argue, is also something like, something like that, the Kav of Simcha, doing joy, with joy. But the fact of the matter is that Yom Kippur too, our first responsibility is not to whether we're going to daven in shul, is whether our wives and children have a place to be Yom Kippur, and they should also honor Yom Kippur the way they can. So that's number one. Whether it means taking your children to shul and being with them, let them davening near you. So the same thing with Simcha's Teda. It's not just some type of escape from family and into, uh, into just your own indulgences, as I said before. And yet, the fact of the matter is that Simchas does have a power, and the fact is you can't, obviously, there's a mechitza between men and women, so that's not doable. So I agree that has to be done with discretion case by case. If a person has a chesidish hergish and he's so involved in Simchas and he has a wife and children that understand that, and it's been explained, and so on. You know, I'm not going to say it's the worst sin. But you have to really see it case by case. I know many instances that it's absolutely not, that's not the case. It's not a chesidish thing. It's more of a party. And then maybe there is no excuse. When, even if not, it also has to always come with a sensitivity to family. So if a came push comes to shove, I would always tell a person, if they had this question, Fabreng, Dance in Chesteda, finish and go home and have a real Suda and dance with your family and celebrate with your family and teach them what Sim Chesteda is. People with children, bring your children to shul, obviously, and dance with them there. It's obviously not a regular day to Yom Tov, and Yom Tevim have their own power, but to completely ignore family is not appropriate, especially if the family is not happy with it. If everybody's happy in a sense, everybody's like the children are going to a children's program and the woman has, the wife that is, has a place where she's celebrating. And the husband's going, so it's all understood that it's all part of the Simchas Teda celebration, like any other type of Fabrengans. Not everyone's always Fabrengan together. But this type of idea of just completely oblivious and without that sensitivity, so I would say, pale mamish, bottom line, speak to your family about it, especially to your spouse. And discuss it and come up with something that makes sense. A woman is often more sensitive to what the needs of the family are. And I don't necessarily even think that there's one formula that fits everyone and not one formula that even fits the same people all the time. Shabbos, what time do you come home? Some people come home right after diving, some a little later. So it has to be done with a sensitivity to the existing family. Everyone has their needs, different ages of children, for example, younger children, older children. But the point I'm making here is that I'm glad that you asked the question that there is critical need to really make a decision about it. It should be deliberate. It shouldn't just be, oh, it's a given, I'm out of here for some chastity, you won't see me till uh, tomorrow. No, that's not the case. Even if you're going to spend more time, it should be discussed and it should be upfront and it should be what is best for the family. Family always comes first. We all know Shalom Bayis is always stronger than Pesuminis of Hanukkah. That's why the Rambam Paskins, the halach is that the Ner Shabbos precedes Ner Hanukkah if you have money for only one. Because Shalom Bayis is greater than everything. So Shalom Bayis doesn't always mean the opposite of chaos or opposite of battle. Shalom Bayis means preserving the, that the home is a healthy home, the home is a united home and a harmonious one. And all that has to come into the Kachajman whenever a person is doing anything that is spiritual or religious or even with good intentions. 
Okay. So I hope I covered that. And as usual, it's not a black and white thing. And there are nuances and case by case, as I always point out. I want to just also refer you to episode 38, where I spoke about Simchas Teda and the importance of children on Simchas Teda. So not only is Simchas Teda Bechlal, you have to take care of your family like every yontah, but Simchas Teda particularly has a unique connection to children, which is why we bring children to shul, and that their children dance as well. And it's part of the process, just like on Pesach, children are such a central component. Okay, let's move a little transition now. Another question, completely of a different sort, but also connected somewhat to, obviously, religious commitment. And that is, the question is, I feel stifled in my ultra-religious home, what can I do? The title that the person wrote it actually was Stifled in Satmer. So I'm glad to hear that um, the program, which I, of course I know before, is listened to not just in, uh, in Chabad communities, but in many communities, including Chassidische communities and Litvisha communities. is quite a following. So um, I say that also, that please, I welcome all questions from any community. It's not necessarily a Lubavitch or Chabad show, even though I do, growing up in Chabad Chassidus, I use Chabad Chassidus as part of Teireh, to address the issues, but the questions should be are completely welcome from whatever cries, whatever community, or whatever, um, whatever um, persuasion you are related to. Okay, so here's the question: Stifled in Satman. Hi, I'm a married mom of seven. Grew up with typical narcissistic dad. Never had a voice, not even by my shidduch. Married a guy with a lot of emotional issues. Finally found my voice and I'm do- and, and, and so done living this lifestyle. Problem though, my kids. The older ones wouldn't want to move out. Husband either. I feel very stuck and sad. Spend tons and tons on therapy, individual and couple. We're going, we're going, in, we're going in circles. What can I do next? I'd need someone to put some sense into my husband to stop expecting change from me. I'm not going back to be your typical Satmer mom. Awaiting a reply, thanks so much. First, let me refer you to other episodes where I discuss similar, not exactly this type of question, but similar topic about stifling, whether religion is stifling and limiting and what one can do about it. Uh, Episodes 38, 151, and 196. But to address your question very directly, and I thank you again for being, uh, I, I feel honored actually to be trusted with such a question. And I'll try my best to answer it with all the limitations and qualifications of not knowing all the details and not knowing all aspects of the, of the situation. But overall, we could say the which leads me to, of course, that you said you tried couple therapy and so on and not going nowhere. There's always someone that can help, a third party. It would be a good idea to find someone that your husband respects because then he'll be cooperative and someone that understands you as well. And, and there's always things that can be done, even on small steps, baby steps, that can make it better. So that's one thing. You, you cannot give up. Second thing is resignation is absolutely not an approach to say, okay, what can I do? I will not change, but so we're just going to have this tension, this ongoing tension. As I said, everything can be improved, and resignation is not an option. And no one's suggesting you have to go back to the past and just... Follow the conformity that's demanded of you. Now, assuming that, and I'm assuming this because I, I would always want to assume that you have a good husband, he may have some issues, but everybody has issues, and you have children, which you love. 
assuming that your husband is a person that you can love and there is a relationship, I'm not talking now specifically religious standards, then obviously you do everything possible to build and make it grow. And maybe you, the woman here, in this case the mom, has, is the catalyst because you have whatever you've experienced, you've come to grow through it and so on. So I would say besides what I said earlier, finding someone that maybe both of you can speak to that your husband will trust, you need to have someone to speak to. Most, best a woman who's either been through something like this or has the wisdom and experience to know how to advise. You have to find ways to self-actualize as a person and as a woman that will make you happy with your life. Very often I find that the people who feel very suppressed in the religious environment, besides being suppressed, they never find their voice and they don't find their voice. So besides the suppression, they just don't have an alternative. So you have to be able to express yourself, whether it's through music, whether it's through writing, whether it's through other work. Everybody has their strengths. The stronger you are, the stronger your, the family unit will be. And in your case, it seems to me that you're going to be the one that initiates, as I said, the catalyst. So to be a catalyst and to really bring it productively, both for your husband and for your children, and not necessarily perfection, but better than it is, is requires an empowered person. And it, and empowering means that you're doing things, it may be outside of your family, it may be outside of your husband, that are very gratifying and enriching, where you feel good at the end of the day. When you feel that way, generally speaking, you're stronger, you'll be able to cope more with any given challenge. If you don't have that, then besides your challenges, you don't have any strengths to work with. So I would, independently of the challenges, work on some of those items. You mentioned, finally found my voice. It'd be interesting to me, to me what that means. What is your voice? And how are you expressing it? So it's one thing to be, I'm done with this lifestyle, but you don't want to be running away from an unhealthy situation all the time. You want to find healthy outlets. That's what I would strongly suggest, in addition to what I've said before. And this is, again, with the limitations, speaking here in a public forum, without knowing all the details, not about you and not about your husband, not about your family, I feel inadequate, and I feel always like I'm not really saying everything that should be said, but that's part of the reality on the ground of this uh, forum and this platform. So I hope this was helpful. And please also don't hesitate. You can write to me privately and personally. As I said on the forum, just add your, include your email. I do think on this one you did write an email. But in case what I've said here requires more, I'd be happy to speak if you want to speak by phone or, or communicate another way and maybe advise further in addition to what I've said here. And this also goes out to everyone out there that has questions. It's a great forum to talk about because this I know, reading a question like this, I know will open the door for others to ask similar questions, which is one of the strong reasons of doing this and not just speaking only privately. But at the end of the day, every case is different. So we need to balance and weigh the two to make it work. Okay. And I want to conclude again. The neshama is free. Every neshama, when a person is not free unless they have teda, and our neshama is free. The fact that we may have grown up in a very cloistered or very suppressive society that's very controlling and so on does not mean your neshama is not free. It just means your society has held you down. The key is to find access to your soul and fly with it and soar. And you can absolutely bring it into your family. Even if your husband is not completely there, the fact of the matter is he wants to be with you as a wife, and vice versa, sometimes it's the other way around. 
So you have to find ways that work for him. That's part of the challenge. And that, by the way, is also part of the exhilarating challenge of a soul's journey in this world. This world is not an easy world. The soul comes into a world where all of us have our trials and tribulations and our twists and turns and ups and downs, as I mentioned. And, but we always know that we were never given a challenge we don't have the power to deal with. Okay, that's a, a, a pep talk summation on this topic, which of course addresses many other issues, including the next question. Fighting between two worlds. Can I balance my secular interests with my spiritual religious life? Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. First of all, I want to say thank you for everything you do for our community and Jewish people in general. You are a brilliant teacher, educator, and an inspiration for how one should live. Halavai. That's my footnote. I'm a teenage Lubavitch girl from New York. I have worked a lot and I'm still working on myself spiritually, and I want to grow. But sometimes I wonder if it's worth it. I know a lot of people who are more chilled and they're very happy. Sometimes I feel like I'm missing out on movies, shows, etc. Is it natural to want to listen to non-Jewish music or watch a movie? Is that from the Yitzhahara or the Nefesh Abamis? Okay, again, thank you for being honest and straight, and I will try my best to reciprocate. I want to first refer you to episodes 24, 25, 49, and 218. These are just related issues. They're not necessarily exactly this question, but topics that I've touched upon that are supplement anything I'm going to be saying now. Okay. Again, with the limitation of not knowing all the details, and I have a number of questions I would ask you if we spoke. But based on what I'm listening here, yeah, on a very black and white halachic level, to say that watching movies or non-Jewish music or shows and so on is from the Nefesh Abamis. It's not coming from the Nefesh Alekis. And on a formal level and on an official level, to tell someone, go ahead and just give in to all your uh, desires, even not necessarily things that are completely prohibited, is, not what, is obviously not an approach. We try to always keep a high standard of living a spiritual and a, and a highly spiritual Jewish life. Yet at the same time, we live in a reality of this world. We do read other things. We do travel. We do see things. And the fact of the matter is that if you have the power to control yourself and just completely be submerged, submerged, I should say, immersed, in Gedusha Kola Yem Kulei, Tovelach Brachin. Absolutely, try it out. Um, I'm saying, it's, it's not try it out. God should bless you and do that. But reality is, we're going to be challenged, and it's hard to say that somebody's never picked up a newspaper and read an article or a book or heard music that's not necessarily Jewish. This is not in any way condoning it. As I said very clearly, from a Torah point of view, we know what Dvarim B'Telem is, even one second, we're not supposed to waste time and learn Torah all the time. Men have their responsibilities in this and women theirs. But, but, but there is a concept of reshus where we have free time, so to speak, where we may be relaxing and maybe reading something that is not prohibited but is not necessarily pure teda. We may be exercising. We may be doing other things that are taking care of our hygiene, our welfare, the, welfare, the standard of welfare of our lives, and so on and so forth. So Chassidus talks about this, obviously, how you elevate that and do it l'shem shemayim, even if you're exercising, you're doing it to be a stronger person. And ultimately, the mission of your life is to serve God. The mission of your life is to, as I said before, make a home for the divine in this corner of your world. But we do this in many ways. 
we do it through direct learning Taylor, just like in Yom Tevim, we do it through the Yom Tevim. In the weekdays, we do it through the weekdays. So we have many outlets. So it seems to me that, that how you describe yourself, you need to speak to a mashpia who can look at your life and help direct you and create literally like a, uh, like a, um, a regimen of list of things that you should be involved in that include things that you do enjoy. There's no reason that Yiddishkeit has to be the only thing that you don't enjoy. Do things that you do enjoy and do it in a way that is the way Taylor and Chassidus tells us to do it. So it's absolutely worth it. The fact that some people so-called are chill and doing other things and they seem happy. You know, first of all, happiness is a very relative thing and happiness could also be very superficial. So I don't think you have to look at others. It's not about others. It's about you being happy. We have to find a way, a formula that makes you happy. And not just look at others and say, oh, if I did that. Now, to be too fachnokt and too serious and too intense to the point that you're becoming miserable in your own life, that's absolutely also not that approach. So that's why I'm saying we have to find something in between. I commend you for the fact that you are working on yourself and, you're, and you want to grow spiritually and so on. But there are many ways, many outlets to do so that are not necessarily that intense and constantly feeling this type of pressure to the point where you feel like you're missing something. You can find tremendous pleasure and tremendous delight, tremendous joy in things that are fulfilling the mission of your life. It doesn't, so that's the key thing I wanted to point out. And um, so we don't have to talk in terms of Yetzirah, Yetzirah, we have to find what is a good formula for you that could be both enjoying yourself as well as Tevla Shemayim, Tevla Bri, is good what God wants you to do and what's good for you and has the combination similar to what I said to the previous questioner, finding outlets, healthy outlets, whether it's music or art or um, uh, people or technology or other things that really help you live up and actualize your great potential. Ultimately, the, the purpose, as Chassidus explains, is to integrate worlds, not to separate. We're not looking to compartmentalize. It's to bring all of you to put together, everything about you, both your spiritual side and doing, including your interests in this world. Everyone has their particular skills and interests and turning them all toward channels to fulfilling our mission in life. And the, frankly, when you know what your mission in life is, everything in life becomes much more enjoyable because it's all going toward fulfilling that higher calling and mission. Okay. With that, let us go back to the, let us go to the next question. And that is, how can I get beyond a past relationship and move toward marriage? Are you ready to get married with your past present? I am an, quote unquote, on paper, a completely normal average from girl, with friends, a normal loving family, and a good job. I am of age to get married, and as it goes, my parents are looking for me for the kind of regular, for me, for the kind regular boy just like me. What is not known is that I have had a relationship with someone for the last couple of years, sort of like a best friend. We do everything together, talk almost all day. I'm, I'm worried it is too much, and I'm unsure how to get out of being, how, get, how to get out of it being that she is my best friend. Is it still okay to get married? How do I know if I'm ready to completely give myself to someone if a good part of my life is filled with this person? I don't think it is healthy, and I'm unsure how to take a step back and if I'm ready to get married because of it. I have dated, and all I thought on this date was half, I have to tell my best friend already about it. It worries me that we are too close. Our friends all view us as the best friends, and it's known. 
I want to get married like all my siblings did and have a normal life with a husband that is my life, like my best friend is right now. I want to move forward and need help going about this. How do I get to this level? Please respond to this as soon as possible. I so much appreciate it. Then the same person wrote a follow-up. I've just submitted a question on how to move on from having a best friend for the last couple of years and I'm being, I'm being afraid I can't give myself over to a husband completely and fully because she is, my, she is in my life. I'm a from regular girl of age to get married. I'm so ready to get married and move on. I didn't mention in the last submission that at times there has been an intimate relationship between this person and I throughout high school. I heard Rabbi Jacobson say this is completely anonymous and that is why I chose to relay this information as well. I know how wrong it is and, feel, and I feel so disgusted when I think about it, yet we are still best friends because we just get each other. I just don't know how to go from here. I think of myself and others view me as completely normal, which I am, but this really takes over my mind a lot. And I don't want to go to therapy for this. Please re- respond to this without the extent of details. It means a lot to me and can change my future. Thank you. So again, before I go into my response, see episodes 115, 136. I don't mean to be so technical, but I did speak about similar items and it may be helpful. That's why I'm referring to it. Okay. Frankly, this one's a little harder to talk about to everybody because this is even more focused to a particular person. You say you refuse to go, you don't want to go to therapy, you may have to go to therapy. Or, let's not call it therapy, you may have to speak to somebody in person that you trust because you may be in a situation where it's going to be difficult for you to get out of it. It seems to me an emotionally entangled connection with somebody is something that can be very powerful and makes us subjective. And even though we may know it's wrong, but it becomes like almost an addiction that to get out of it is harder than to stay, even if you know it's wrong. It's like the known evil, harder than the unknown. Now, I don't want to call it necessarily evil, but the point I'm trying to make is that it's something you get accustomed to. I don't know if it's easy for me to say something, that I'll say something that I think will be like a magic button, and you'll suddenly say, ah, that's it. So, But I will say a few key things here. So I think it's vital that you find a person, let's not call it therapy. Maybe you're right, maybe it's not therapy but somebody you can talk to and openly trust, and not your best friend, obviously, because that, that person is the issue here. Now, I don't know the extent of what caused this relationship to become this way, what needs you have, did you have a void, what your growing up was like, your family, your parents, and the love you received at home <clears throat> from siblings and so on. But it's important to, be, to, for the, to know, the, to be able to respond It's important to know the whole entire equation here. But with all that qualification, I will continue to say the following, that the fact of the matter is you want to be married. Marriage is a beautiful thing. It's finding a companion that is your best friend. So maybe you can say, I learned from this relationship what friendship is, what companionship is, what it means to care about someone, what it means to be cared for. And everything has a redeeming element. So you learned, and now time to say goodbye. You're not saying goodbye to the relationship. You're saying goodbye to this person and transferring the relationship where it should be in a healthy place, which is a marriage with a husband that becomes his best friend. And this doesn't mean you have to say goodbye to this person forever, but you definitely have to find a way to untangle yourself from this intensity because it's, as you said, consuming you and blocking you from getting to where you want to be. I don't know what that other person's life is. Are they also single? Are they having the same issues or not? 
But regardless, you have to think about yourself first. And this is not a rejection. This is taking whatever we've learned, and hopefully there was good things in this relationship, friendship, and transferring it to where you have to be. But I believe you'll need a third party, or another party, not a third, a second party, that will help you, guide you, coach you, and also give you strength not to revert, because it's going to be very easy for you to just gravitate back to your comfort zone with this friend, especially if they're so close to you. Those are my key point pieces of advice. Again, if you want more, you can write to me privately, and I'll try to give you more suggestions. But that's what I would suggest at this point, and anyone else in a similar situation. With all the qualifications that I don't feel that I can give a full adequate answer beyond what I just said. Okay, next question. What is the Rebbe's view regarding a prenup? Okay. So we know a prenup is a prenuptial agreement made between two people, a man and a woman, before they get married, with different dealing with different conditions. And we all know there's a big controversy around it, especially in the halachic world and religious world. So firstly, let me say clearly this. I have not found anything from the Rebbe directly on this. Um, yet I'll speak about it because this question has come up, and I'm going to read the question in detail. But I wanted to just begin with that. Yet there, and, but, and I will share some things that I consulted with some rabbis and give you some of what I found and feedback on that. But let me first read the questions, two questions. One is from an individual and one is from parents. Two separate questions. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I'm writing with... I'm, write, I'm writing... I'm writing a second attempt at a question that I had left unanswered for months on end. I know it's a touchy issue. I hope you can help me with this. I'm a 23-year-old bocher. I grew up in a wealthy Lubavitcher family and now attend university. I've just started with Shaduchin and I'm very concerned. I've noticed a number of from friends of mine who have gone through and been destroyed by brutal divorces. The young men have been accused utterly false by their, falsely by their now ex-spouses of horrific things, sexual deviance, raping or otherwise abusing their spouses, being a danger to their own kids, and even attempting, attempted stabbing. My friend who was accused of stabbing his ex wasn't even in the country on the date she accused him of it. Ex-wives not giving back heirloom jewelry that has been in the husband's family for generations, and other horror stories. Another friend who did very well in business is now paying his ex $15,000 a month, yes, a month, child support after she extorted him during their divorce proceedings, threatening all sorts of sordid accusations against him. Knowing these friends, I know they haven't done the things they've been accused of. I'm now somewhat scared to get married, but even more scared about getting married without a prenup. I've heard that many Rabbanim in the more modern from circles insist on prospective couples getting a prenuptial agreement. I'm not naive and know that even a good prenup can't prevent everything, but I'm now dating a girl seriously and I'm thinking about it. What was the Rebbe's view on prenuptial agreements? Thanks so much. A second question in this genre. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you so much for your great video, Fabrengans. My husband and I enjoy watching your weekly offering. Our son is now the age that he's going on Shaduchim. My husband and I are very concerned, as we know our son is a difficult personality when it comes to relationships. While people seem to love him and he loves kids, etc., he's very bossy and verbally aggressive. To be clear, I don't mean that he would, God forbid, curse or demean as someone, but he wants what he wants and will use his strong logic and persistence to bulldoze people into giving him what he wants. While we're sure that this will make him a great businessman, it will not make him a great husband. Baruch Hashem, he has inherited lots of money from his grandparents. 
as probably richer as a young man than most people will ever be. He does not know about this money yet, but soon enough he will have to know, as we can't keep it from him much longer. We are concerned about, this, about his getting married and divorced, possibly numerous times. What was the Rebbe's view about someone with this personality getting married? Also, this personality leaves him exposed to women who marry him, and when utterly vexed by him, tried to take away his inheritance. Our question is regarding a prenuptial agreement. What was the Rebbe's view on a prenup? Thank you so much, a concerned mom. Okay. So firstly, as I said, I have not found anything from the Rebbe directly about this. If anybody does have information, whether Balpeh or an oral story they heard or something in writing, please share it with me and I will share it with the public. Uh, but barring that, I've, I consulted on a few rabbis. I'm not an active um, pulpit or paisik, meaning someone that rules and actively rulings. Like, you know, even if you may know halacha, it doesn't mean you're a surgeon. Just like someone who knows medicine doesn't mean they can do surgery. So I consulted with people who deal with this on a daily basis, marriage, divorce, agreements, and so on. And here's what the consensus was. The consensus was that there's there's not a problem halachically with a prenuptial financial agreement. As long as, and I emphasize, as long as, there's no mention made of a get or divorce. Because that can have problems. And that has to be guided by a competent rav in detail. But an actual prenuptial agreement, even one or two rabbis told me, they even advise it for people who come from wealth, because why should there have to be that concern? Now, of course, there's the issue of trust. A woman will say, you don't trust me. So that's already more of a psychological, emotional thing. But from a halachic point of view, I say again, what I've, my information is, is that there is, I'm just trying to read as it, that, however, a financial prenup, as long as no mention of the get, can be a very good idea for both parties. The ksuba is essentially a prenup for the wife because it guarantees a certain financial security. So that's the answer. Now, as far as get goes, and, even, and generally a prenup as well, I would not do anything without a competent rov, either shemayim, reviewing it and making sure it's done right. So it could be perhaps drafted or done worked in, co- in coordination with lawyers, but it has to be done right. Now the spirit, of course, the question is the spirit. What kind of spirit is a couple going in with a prenup? There's no trust. But if there's an issue of money, and money, and especially the challenges that the second writer writes, the parents, that there are challenges that may not work out, we never go into a marriage thinking it's not going to work out. You obviously do everything possible, and you make sure to fight to keep the marriage going. But in case, because finances may be an issue, as I said, some recommend, why not do a prenup only around the financial component of it? The spirit of it, if a couple came to me, I would do everything possible to try to convince them, no prenup, just trust each other and do it right. But unfortunately, reality on the ground is such that people can resort to means that are not exactly ethical. And if a prenup can help avoid that when there's finances, then maybe that may be the goal. I am not going to rule on it, because I'm not a, I, I don't rule. I'm just sharing what I have my findings on the matter. Okay. Let us move to another question. And that is, let me make sure I'm covering everything. How do I return to Chabad after being away? Okay, here's how it goes. Here's the question. Good vach, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you so much for your program. I have been listening every week consistently for a few years now, and I really have enjoyed it. I am a BT, a Baal Shuvah, 
coming from through Chabad, and I went to a Chabad yeshiva. I took on things the way too. I took on things way too quickly, and within a few months, got married. My marriage was a bracha, a blessing, even though it ended in divorce. Baruch Hashem, we had a child, and she's incredibly beautiful and healthy. After my divorce, I let go of a lot, but still remain Shomer Shabbos, Kashrut. Over the course of the next three years or so, I explored many different avenues, approaches of being a Frum Jew. This Yom Neroim, that means these high holidays, I, had, I have had a spiritual awakening of sorts and realized that I really am a Chosid. I'm ready to come back into the more Chabad circles and practice more outwardly as a Labavitcher. But I have reservations and questions perhaps you've addressed in your weekly podcast and you can direct me to them. Some of my questions include, what will education look like for my daughter? How fast should I take things back on? I am at this point stating bleed nether to basically everything, but how do I know when it's right to actually take it with a nether? I have a reservation on finding the right fit of a Chabad community for me. I've kept many, many chumrasim and hagim, but I've basically been in modern orthodox circles since my divorce. Where do I go? What can I do to explore the right fit for me? Is it a problem to be a full-blown Chabad chassid in a modern Orthodox community? Thank you so much for your work. I'm looking forward to the answers. I would prefer to be a, speak to you, be able to hear more details. So if you wish to write back and give, me your, and, and, and give me your contact information, we could speak. But since this question may also affect others, and you may not want to speak, so let me just say the following. In general, Yiddishkeit is meant to be internalized, and integrated step by step. Tafasta marubalei tafasta usually doesn't work when you grab too much like you described. It's most more important that you own it than just you do it. That's in general. And obviously we're talking, not talking about the past, now we're talking the future. But since you've had this awakening, which is beautiful to hear, this epiphany, so why not learn from your past? You don't have to jump into anything. I would go step by step, have a mashpia, in my opinion, find a mentor, that you can run and review things and say, you know what, I'm thinking of embracing this uh, custom or this minig or this humra, And see what another person says, someone that cares about you and that understands you. And that's how I would go step by step. Mitzvah, gereris, mitzvah. How will you know? Two, one, what resonates. Number two, having this objective mentor opinion. As far as um, your daughter in schooling, that goes the same way. I don't know where she's going to school now. You want to make sure also any transitions will be healthy for her. And this, again, usually needs advice from educators or people who are familiar with these issues. I don't know how old your daughter is, etc. So I'm not concerned about what what school to go to, but rather the transition of your daughter. I'm just going through your questions here. But a community, again, I don't know where you are living now, but I am a believer that you can try out different things until you get the right fit. I don't think there's a black and white answer. It will resonate. You'll go to a place you feel this comfortable. Some other places you won't feel so comfortable. Can you be a chassid in a modern Orthodox community? You can be a chassid in a, in a non-Orthodox community too. Now, you may need the strength of a community, the support of a community to keep you strong. You know, are you thinking of remarrying? That's important too. So there are questions I don't have answers to. But based on what you've said, I think, number one, get a mashpia to talk to and take things step by step, and, and absolutely embrace. Remember, Chabad Chassid, being a Chabadnik, is not just dress. It's a it's an approach. It's a methodology to life. 
And if you embrace that methodology, which includes being a shliach in your own way of bringing light and kedusha and holiness and godliness to other people, that is something that is quintessentially Chabad. So also we have to discuss, what does it mean Chabad? Do you mean purely the customs of Chabad, the songs of Chabad? The lifestyle of Chabad? But above all, the hashkofa, the philosophy, the methodology, what the Rabbeim expect and demand of us. And that can be done in many different ways, not necessarily one way. That to me also, I talk about cultural, I would not be concerned about the cultural elements or the social elements. I'd be concerned more with the Chabadnik as in the spirit of it. But obviously human beings need support, they need community, they need all that. So by all means, consult. And again, if I can be a further help, let me know how. I want to just comment something on the previous question, which I, 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 I skipped. I spoke about the prenup, but you also spoke about your son being difficult. You know, I always believe that no matter who a person is, even if they're difficult, and as, as you put it, that you feel that you don't have confidence in him, which is not nice to hear from parents, your son has to talk to somebody. Get him to talk to somebody, because you never know why people are difficult. They could be because they feel lack of misunderstood. It could be other issues going on. They may not be willing to talk to you as parents. So I just wanted to point that out, even though the question, I addressed the prenup side of it, but I think it's very vital to care about your son to make sure, I'm just looking. About his personality and his aggression and so on, to make sure that you're doing the best for him and not ignore that. Okay. With that, let me go to one follow-up. I'm going to go to the Chassidus question and the essays. The follow-up is, a few weeks ago I spoke about the projects that have been spawned by My Life Chassidus Applied, of course the essay contest, but there are other projects that have been spawned outside of us, which I find, I'm so gratified to hear that, because there's nothing greater to hear than when you've done something and others have taken the idea and created their own ideas. That is uh, the best of all. I mentioned the course that a woman has done, Basi Mishalov and Basi Cohen, in California, the girls' school there for young, for high school students, um, on Yadus for my life, which is taking Chsidis and applying it to the Yom Tevim, including even the Yom Depagra of Chsidim, like Hey Tevis and Yutas Kisler, making it personally applicable. And we're actually working with her on it. So someone wrote a follow up to that, another Chsidis project. Thanks to your program. Thanks to this program. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I wanted to let you know about another Chassidus project that is an outgrowth of this program. Writing my essay for the essay contest three years ago was a hugely transformative experience in my personal relationship to Tanya. To pay the bracha forward, I began writing up a daily summary of each day's Tanya with a short practical takeaway. Baruch Hashem, I'm now in the third year of this project and currently editing the summaries in order to Mitzvah Hashem turn it into a published book. My prayer is to have my first round edits done by the 19th of Kislev and then pass it along to Tanya experts for content review. The project started with 30 people receiving the daily summary and thank God grew to over 200 Yidin from all walks of life and backgrounds receiving the summary. Thank you so much for all you do. This project is to your schus. Beautiful to hear. I specifically read it, not obviously to toot my horn or the program's horn, but to encourage and realize that each of you, every one of us, can find ways to take this and make it applicable through your, using your unique talents, your unique audience, your unique um, sphere of influence, and so on. So thank you for sharing that. And um, as I said, nothing more gratifying than when you do something and it spawns others 
and Cain Yerbu many times over until we conquer the whole world with Yefutsu Menesecha Chutzu. With that, let me go to the Chassidus question, which we do every week. Chassidus question is, please explain what Achdus Hashem means. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, can you please explain what Achdus Hashem means? As I grew, as I grew in learning Chassidus and my understanding, all of my paradigms and perceptions seem to be flipping upside down. I feel like Baruch Hashem, life, the world, and its fragmentation is beginning to look better through the lens of Chassidus. A few concepts, however, still really boggle my mind, and I don't know how to fit them into Hashem's unity. Sitta Achra and Klippa. I don't know how to go about thinking about these ideas. Hashem is an all-good God, a purposeful God. What goodness and what purpose do three, three, the Gimel Klippa Satmeis and Sitra Achra serve in this world? And if they are part of Hashem, Hashem's Agdus, shouldn't I really be happy for, that they, for, they, for what they stand for, in a sense, like in a sense, divine agents that are here to fulfill a purpose of their Creator. Also, another idea I don't understand, when we learn that the higher the thing is, the lower it falls, like the lion in the Merkava is higher than the axe, however down on this earth the lion isn't kosher, the axe is, because the lion fell further, let's explain the Chassidus, so to what extent does this principle apply? Do we say the same thing for a pig? Do we say the same for, for an uh, a, a, a aggressive Gentile? Or a drug-abusing human that harms social society? Do we say they come from a higher source since seemingly they are lower? I don't understand. I would really appreciate it if you can clarify. Thank you so much for all that you do. Let me divide the question into two parts. One is, Ardash Hashem, what is it? And number two, how do you deal with the negative elements. And I'm not going to address both now. I'll address the first part. Now, next week, I'll address how Ahdus is associated with Sitra Ahdus. But the first thing we have to do is, what is exactly Ahdus? So, if you look in Derech Mitzvah the Tzemach Tzadik, she has a mitzvah called Ahdus Hashem. Mitzvah Ahdus Hashem. There in the Sefer mitzvah, she takes different mitzvahs and explains it first. He usually brings the Nigla of it, the Rambam or the Chinuch, what the mitzvah is, and then explains it according to Chassidus. So there he explains Ardus Hashem. So Ardus Hashem is the Posik Shmaisra Hashem Alekenu Hashem Achad. We declare God's unity. That there isn't a God somewhere in heaven and is not connected and related to our existence. It's a unification. Echad is the Rosh Hashanah Aleph, which is Aluf Yisraelim God. Ches is eight, seven heavens on earth. And Dalad are the four different directions. Dalad Ruches Elam. And we're Ma'achad, and we say that God is one with the existence that he created. You go deeper, you have the Ardus of Avayan Alekim, Avayahu Alekim. Like we say in Yom Kippur seven times, every day in every bracha, Barachat Hashem Alekeinu. That's the Ardus, the unity that the transcendent God, that's beyond existence, is one with a God that manifests in existence in Alekim, which is Gematria Hateva, nature. As opposed, in contrast, to pantheism, Spinoza's pantheism, which says God is nature, nature is God, God forbid. So God is nature, but God is beyond nature. Nature is God, but God is not nature. Chassidus discusses at length these points of Ardus that I just said, but even more. As the, as the Tzemach Tzedek continues, he says, so Ardus is one thing, that existence is one with God. Then he explains that the Baal Shem Tev, the language of the, the Tzemach Tzedek is very powerful, he says, chapter 3 in the Maimer. you say the Baal Shem Tev, Nishma Bezeir HaKadosh, Yisparash Inyan Zebi Yesir Haflo Pella. 
that this union of Avdus is explained by the Baal Shem Tev, as he explains in the, based on the Zayar, in Hafla Bapela, in a wondrous, wondrous way, Bebir Inya Yichud, that beside the yichud, that the godliness is one with existence, that there isn't one God, a monotheism as opposed to many, God forbid, gods. Shitu, for example, a partnership, or plurality, or duality, but that all of existence is really doesn't exist, is all godliness too. So there's only one reality. In other words, it's not just there's one God, not many gods, and that God creates existence and relates to existence all the time, but there's only one reality. Total seamless reality. That reality is godliness, and that reality created something that to us looks like a world. Because he concealed himself, as Al Tareb explains in Shad Yichud Va'amunna, which is about Shad HaYichud, unity and a faith. What's the unity? The unification of godliness with existence. It starts with the fact that all of existence has no substance of its own without God constantly sustaining it. So that takes already to a deeper level. Now there's deeper than that as well. There's Yechud Mamayla Lamata, Mamata Lamayla. Which I'm not going to go right into detail now. So Avdus Hashem is essentially vital. Besides the fact that it's a Pasuk exists, it's a mitzvah. It's vital also, and I'll explain it both on a divine level and on a human level. On a divine level because it tells, it, it allows us to really say, even though God created the world, you could say, you know what? Shamayim, Shamayim Lashem. Heaven belongs to God. And we live here, and earth belongs to us. But that takes away the whole meaning of God in our lives. Agdus Hashem is saying that our entire life is dedicated to, and committed to, and bound to, and more than that, infused with, and its real primius is alakus, which, which gives us the ability to rise above our own human subjectivity and our own self-interest to connect to something higher, because that higher is with us. There's a yichud, yichud yilah, yichud Yet another two expressions. As I said, I'll discuss this more in the coming episodes. But the point is, Agdus is Negeya because it's the whole purpose of existence. When you do a mitzvah, instead of doing what you want to do, you're doing what God commands. You're in a sense uniting yourself with God's will. Just like a, a servant would follow his master's will. Or a child following his parents' will. So Agdus is Negeya to the whole purpose of, of existence. Serving God by realizing that you are connected and it's not two separate realities. Obviously God is beyond us, but we want to connect to that beyond. And that's the basis of faith and Kabbalah sale and our subjugating ourselves to something, a higher presence, which is really the foundation of all of Yiddishkeit. Without that, that's why it's the, the first of the Yud Gimel Ikrim, that there's a God. You say that you say this, Everything is connected and connected. And the Agdus, Chassidus takes the Agdus in a far deeper way that connects the lowest levels to the highest levels. That we don't just connect to lower levels of godliness, as some Kabbalists explain, but we can connect to the highest levels of godliness. So that there's an utter unification, utter interface between existence and God. So if the Tata just said, follow my commandments, you could argue, you know what, a servant doesn't have to understand God, a servant doesn't have to feel, love God, a servant doesn't have to feel connected to God. All he has to do is follow the orders. But the Torah has mitzvah, No God. And take it to your heart. Love God. A servant doesn't have to love a master nor understand the master. But the Torah wants us to because God wants us to have a total partnership with him as much as possible and integrating 
that we're actually partners with him. And partnership means unity. Whereas the Evid Oden, you could say the unity is minimal, I'm doing what he wants. But there's a unity that also then becomes completely internalized in our mind, in our hearts, in our actions. We will talk about more aspects of others, including the other part of the question in, a, in the coming episode and maybe episodes. Now, essays. So we have the three essays. Oh, let me say one more thing about, I said the personal. This is also fascinating. In life, you see, unity is not just a divine thing. It means it's fundamentally a divine thing, but I mean, it expresses itself not only in divine ways. Everybody's searching for unity. You can say all of science in one line is the search for unity, the unifying principles, the laws that connect all the different fragmented phenomena. And you see even human beings gravitate to unity. Even children, give them different objects of different sizes and shapes. You'll see they try to fit them in to the corresponding holes or corresponding spaces for that. Because we gravitate toward unity. In life, when we feel fragmented and compartmentalized, we are unsettled. It's disconcerting. It's disorienting. We look for order. Why? Because our neshama is driven by Hashem Echad, by unity, the higher unity. So unity in life, even on a very secular level, you can say, do you want to have a life that has a thousand different voices and demands tugging at you in different directions? Or do you want to have a hub that connects everything? Every business needs a mission statement that connects all the details. Everything needs a plan, an objective, a goal that's higher than the details, that transcends the details and connects them all. If not, we end up having scattered energy going in different directions, which is a problem for all of us. So echad, Hashem echad, that we say, unity is not just a unity between God, it also permeates that everything you do is unified toward a higher purpose. Of course, the purpose being the divine purpose of our existence. Okay, the three essays are, this is all from the last essay contest, um, which is the fourth essay contest, fourth or the fifth? Fourth essay contest, I believe. Um, and uh, we, every week we cover three essays. There were many, many essays that were uh, submitted. And we go down the list. So these first two are Hebrew and the third is in English. First one is, In English, third-person terminology, the empathetic approach of Chassidus. Written by Toby Lerner, age 19, Jerusalem, Israel. Mechlelad Beit Rivka. That's where she studies. So basically, a very short and sweet but powerful essay that talks about the, 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 the different approach Chassidus has than other approaches in addressing people's issue, challenges. So often you find that you're dealing with challenges, you talk in a negative way, in a way like in a, uh, like Musar, that uh, reprimands and rebukes. Chassidus talks positive. Everything is positive. Even when it comes to negative things, we take a positive approach. So she asks the questions, and if that's the case, so what, but the fact of the matter is, we find that in Tanya, he addresses both sides. Uplifting of the Shama, how great the Nisham is, but also... The yelling at the Nefesh is the animal soul in the Yetzirah, that it's, a, it's a despicable and so on. So in this essay, she points out that when it's speaking the negative, it speaks in the third person, not you. It. Suggesting that it's not you. You're not, you really are fundamentally a good person. 
but you have inside of you a side that's not really you. That's why in the third person, it, the, that, that animal soul that you have, it can cause you, can cause you to do this, can cause you to do that. That's the gist of it. Nicely done. And how that's applied in our personal lives. This essay and all essays can be seen as they're posted each week at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, the essays. As well as if you subscribe to our uh, emails, you will receive them in your inbox as they are posted. Essay number two today, tonight, does the mind really control the heart? Moyach Shalat Alev HaUmnam Ba'ofir Raz, age 22, Kiryat Arba, Israel Mechlelet Shanan HaMechlelet HaKadami Sadatit LeChinuch Okay. Seminary there that, uh, and, and this one, this essay addresses, of course, this topic about the difference between masculine and avedim, that the rabbeim referred to people who are intellectuals and people who work on themselves, or aveda. And he's that, of course, the preference is I'd rather have an avid than ten, one avid, he says, from Neville, than the ten chsid masculine from Kremen Shuk, who's been known for their intellectuals. And discusses this idea of the difference between the two, because seemingly, why would you why would you prefer the Evdim when Chassidus is Chabad, which is all about learning and understanding? And we see Chassidus is not just only about Veda. So this essay addresses that in detail, and brings it into a very practical application of the two parts of the mind and the heart, and how they function, and how we need both. And, and uh, how that applies to each one of us in our personal lives. Okay. Yeah, very good sources and a lot of interesting things, some things that are not so familiar with, people are not familiar with and known. So thank you for that. The next and final essay is Letting Stress Roll Away. Yeshua Rubin, age 27, Brooklyn, New York, Kalo Menachem. Arguably the greatest contemporary societal problem is stress. With all the statistics, this essay will show the reader how through applying Chassidus to his life, he can succeed in all his personal endeavors, worry, and stress-free. The method that one employs when having to douse a physical fire that has engulfed oneself, stop, drop, and roll, will be applied on the spiritual level of how to extinguish the fire of stress. First, stop to focus inward on the Yechida Etzem Aneshama, essence of the soul, then drop back into the world with the outlook that Aveda Sabirudim, the divine service of refinement, has already been completed, and roll through life's challenges and full conviction that there exist no true obstacles. And breaks this down the stop, drop, and roll approach. Very creative, very interesting, and a good read as well. So now, my friends, with this, we conclude this week's episode, My Life Chesedis Applied, as we Approach Shchedish Cheshvan. May it be a good Gibench to Yar for everybody. A blessed Cheshvan and a year of Geula. And a year that we all do our part beyond anything that we've done till now in spreading Chesidus Chutzah to the farthest outskirts wherever we can reach. Each one of us have our tools and abilities and sphere of influence to do so. And when we do that, as Mashiach promised Baal Shem Tov, then Mashiach will come when your Chutzah We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m., except when we announce otherwise due to the holidays. So everyone have a very blessed week. Until next Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. This has been My Life, Because It's Applied, episode 230.